Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. I will admit to you right off the bat that I know very little about soccer. I know very little about soccer. I know some things about some sports. Soccer's not one of them. I played, the last time I played soccer was probably 10 years ago, and someone kicked me the ball, and I stepped on it and rolled and fell to the ground. I just, I'm not good with a soccer ball. I know a couple of things about soccer. Most of the world calls it football, and I know that Cristiano Ronaldo has been the best, if, if one of the couple of best players over the last number of years in the world. He is a sports icon. He's one of the most famous faces in the world, maybe not so much in Canada, but globally. Globally, Cristiano Ronaldo is like the biggest sports thing. And, um, and so some people thought it would be fun. Why don't we dress him up and put him in a, in a city square and just have some fun with this? So they put a bodysuit on him. They made him quite a bit larger than he actually is. They gave him a beard. They gave him a wig. They gave him glasses. And um, they gave him a tip jar. And into uh, this city square he went, and he pretended he was busking for money. And so he was just doing tricks with the ball. And nobody in this city square had time for this. They're just like, get out of my way, and kind of annoyed by him. He'd try and interact with people and kick the ball to them, get them to kick it back, and they're just not interested. And eventually, some people would see the tricks he was doing, which are astounding, and they would stop and look at it. No one seemed to tip him <laughs> at all. What he was doing was truly amazing. And then a little kid finally started to interact with him, this little boy, and he kicked the ball back and forth and tried to get him to do some tricks. And eventually, Ronaldo just kicked the ball up to his, his hands and grabbed it and took out a Sharpie pen and signed the ball. Then he gave it to this boy. And as he gave it to this boy, he said, here, this is for you. And he took off his beard and he took off his glasses and he took off his wig. And it's like everything stopped in this busy city square. And the people who were annoyed with him, the people who couldn't be bothered, saw who it was. Like the most famous athlete on the planet. And so here's this little boy holding the ball, just amazed. The one kid that really interacted with this star has the ball, and he's beaming, and off walks Cristiano Ronaldo out of the square to this flock and crowd of people who are like, oh, oh, it's him, right? Now they care. This is really what we have been doing in the Gospel of John for the last number of weeks. Jesus just gets up in front of people and says, I'm the light of the world. They're like, yeah, no, no. Occasionally, people would believe. They'd be like, he is the Son of God. This is Jesus, and they would worship him, and they they believed, and they were amazed, but many people were like, I don't know who that is. And that's where we've been. See, people had no problem seeing Jesus and believing that he was fully man. The challenge for them was to believe his words, which he makes really clear this morning, if it hasn't been clear enough already, that he's also fully God. And that's where people had trouble. In fact, this is the thesis statement. This is the purpose of John's gospel. He actually states the reason he wrote it at the end of the gospel in in, Um, John chapter 20, verse 31, he says, these are written, everything that's written in my gospel is written so that, here, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I wrote this gospel so that you would see that Jesus is God and that by believing in Jesus, you would be saved. That's why. That's what this is for. And so Jesus appears in front of people and continues to tell that story. Will they believe it or will they not? And that same proposition is placed before us. We are called to interact with John's gospel and 
understand who we believe Jesus to be, come to a conclusion regarding that, because John has making a case. He's making a case. Let's look in John chapter 8, starting in verse 48. We are closing out not only the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, but a, but a season in the Gospel of John. We're going to leave it alone for a little while. If anyone's type A in this room and want to know where we're going at all times, we will begin John chapter 9 in January of 2017. Maybe mark that down. We will pick up John 9 verse 1 then. But for now, we're, we're closing out this chapter and we're closing out a season in John's gospel. Here's what the last verses of John 8 say. The Jews answered him. They're responding to Jesus where we left off two weeks ago. Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do, not, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. To God alone be the glory. Every aim of Jesus was not self-glorification, but glorification to the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Just a a little aside here for a moment, and just pause. I always find it fascinating when people talk about the Old Testament God as being wrathful and mean, and the New Testament God just being lovey, like lovey-dovey lovey, like just loving, just, just, he'll just hug you. Like, that's the New Testament God, and here's the Old Testament God. Jesus just finished stating in our text a couple weeks ago, um, your father is the devil, and you love doing your father's will. You love the devil, and you love doing his work. That's what he said last time. And here he says, if I were to not say, if I were to say I don't know God, I'd be a liar like you, you bunch of liars. Like, this is Jesus. This is, he makes it so clear. Like, we have to not caricature Jesus. We have to not caricature the Bible. Jesus is firm. Jesus is clear. Is he loving? Absolutely. But he's also really pointed. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Huge statement we'll unpack. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus Jesus hid himself. It's actually passive. Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple because God providentially is still waiting for that timing of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. That theme just carries There is so, so much here. Some of it we've touched on in weeks previous, but we just have to narrow it for the sake of time. And just to be really clear about the kind of the main themes of what's going on in here. So just to follow it, to track it, um, I I want us to to follow the three pointed questions that are asked in this text and the three extraordinary responses that Jesus gives. So here's the first. Aren't you 
a demon-possessed Samaritan? That's question number one. I just, I love the phrasing of the question, are we not right in saying that you're a demon-possessed Samaritan? Would we not be right? You know, like, are we not right in saying you are these things? That's their question. They're asking a question of competence with this underlying belief that he's not competent. But Jesus responds by denying the accusation and responds, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That leads us to the second question, never see death. Are you greater than Abraham and the prophets? They died. How will we never see death if we believe your words? Are you greater than them? This is a a question of prominence or status, right? Do you have that kind of status? And Jesus responds, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Which leads them to their third question, Abraham saw your day. How could you possibly have seen Abraham? You're not yet 50. And Jesus responds, before Abraham was, I am. So let's look at the first, and we'll work our way through, because these are are quite confusing interactions. Are you not a demon-possessed Samaritan? We don't think you're competent to say what you're saying. They're looking at him and saying, we're children of Abraham. Moses is our father. Abraham is our father. Who are you that you would question us about our paternity and connection to God? You must be a Samaritan and demon-possessed. That's the only explanation that they could have for what Jesus was saying. You're not a good Jew. You're questioning that we even know God? You must be an outsider. You must be a Samaritan, right? A half-Jew, half-Gentile. They were despised by Jews, and Samaritans despised um, Jews. They, they, were, they despised one another. And so, with the tone of what Jesus is saying, they're, they're like, you must be a Samaritan. And there is actually a racial tone to what they're saying. There's a disdain. There was nothing worse that they could think of than saying, you're a Samaritan. It's an insult in their minds. And then they go on to compound it by saying, and demon-possessed as well. It's a a way of saying, not only are you an outsider, you must be because of the things you're saying, but you're also out of your mind. You're an outsider who's out of his mind. A quick aside here, sort of an apologetic, just kind of a defense of the faith here for a moment. If you're John the gospel writer and you're making up a story, like you're writing a fictitious gospel trying to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's flatly not true, you know what one of the things is that you don't write in your gospel? that's not really helpful, is that when people heard Jesus talk, they thought He was a demon-possessed Samaritan. Like, it's just not the kinds of things that you would write about your Savior or this one that you're trying to make a case for, but, but John, the gospel writer, is just really faithfully right, writing down what he has observed that God has given him to recollect and to include in this gospel, and it includes things like this, that who would ever include statements like that unless they truly happened? Well, when they say, are we not right, in calling you a demon-possessed Samaritan, Jesus denied those accusations and declared, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about abiding in Jesus' word. And we concluded that what that really means is that the gospel, like the heart of Jesus' word, 
The gospel fills us as we abide in Jesus' word. So we believe in Jesus in repentance and faith. We cling to Jesus, and he becomes our sustenance. We abide in his word. The gospel is on our hearts. The gospel is on our minds. The gospel is on our lips, right? We live in the gospel, and as we do, it fills us. It sustains us, and it goes further than that. The gospel frees us from the enslaving power of sin as we abide in Jesus' word. So abiding in Jesus' word actually frees us as we cling to Jesus, frees us from the enslaving power of sin, and we can actually um, conquer sin through Christ and his work. Thirdly, the gospel fuels us to bear much fruit as we abide in Jesus' word. We become useful to the kingdom by abiding in his word. And so Jesus again here says, keep my words, and he adds something, you'll never see death. See, those who rely on Jesus and abide in his word because they, be, they come to discover that he truly is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, it's just realizing that Jesus is our hope, and because of that, we stick with Jesus. A number of weeks ago, I went on a ride-along with a police officer from our church in Abbotsford. Every once in a while, I like to see what you guys are up to during the week, and so if you'd like me to come to your job, get in line, all right? Everybody wants me to come to their job, but I... I this, <laughs> Nobody does, to be honest. Um, but I was invited to go on a ride along, and he said the best time to go is a Friday night, like into the night, because it gets that's when that's when stuff happens, like the crazy stuff. I'm like, okay, all right, let's go for a Friday night ride along. So I go, and, and here's my thinking. I mean, I, I generally sit in the chair, and the the most extreme things I do is lift two books at a time or type things for more than five minutes, whatever, right? Like, that's, that's the strenuousness of my role uh, physically. And so I just assumed, though, that a ride-along meant you ride along with the police officer, meaning when we get to a destination, I'm, just for, I'm here for the ride. I'm just going to lock my door, and you do your thing, and, and then I'll continue to ride along with you. That's what the perspective was in my mind, right? So uh, he said, no, 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 no. Uh, this is a ride. You're going to go everywhere I go. So you stick with me. Like, you stay by my side. Everywhere I go, you're, you go. Don't separate from me. Don't stay in the car. You come with me everywhere. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you're wearing a bulletproof vest, and I, I'm going everywhere you go. So, like, where's mine? It's in the trunk or? Ah, uh, you know, you know, need. You, okay, that's great. And, and what was really great about that was the first call that came in was that someone had witnessed some men removing rifles out of the trunk of a car. And so, okay, call number one is I'm going with you, and rifles were removed from the trunk of a car, and I don't have a bulletproof vest, but I'm going where you're going, and we're going to find these guns. That sounds great. I think what I'm going to do is when you, when you start to talk with them and things get a little bit weird, I'm just going to start like slowly stepping backwards, and you will be my human shield. Just be comfortable with that, and I'll be here. You do your thing. You be between me and the guns, please. I'm Mennonite after all, right? I just, I don't know what to do. So, um... And so all, all of that was going on, but, but the piece for me was if I wanted to live, if I wanted to have life, if I wanted to be safe, I was sticking with him. He had the gun, he had the vest, right? I'm just going to get behind him. And so um, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. If anyone keeps my word, listen to all of these things. You will, you will have sustenance. You will be filled. You will know me, right? You will be um, freed from the enslaving power of sin in your life, and you will be useful to my kingdom. And not only that, he even ups it in this case. If you abide in my word, if you keep my words, you will never see death. Okay, what? If we follow Jesus, live in his word, follow Christ, right, give our lives to him, we'll never see death? What does that mean? Because all of us know people who have died, believers included, and what does it mean that we'll never see death? 
Earlier this week, I was with a family who tragically lost their son and brother who was in his 20s. And um, it was probably a scenario um, that I have seen grief uh, more than I ever have before, the wailing, the crying, the loss, the hanging over that son as he lay there. What do you say in a moment like that? So I talked a little bit about God as Father, not distant, not angry, not uncaring, but a loving Heavenly Father who comforts the grieving and the brokenhearted, who heals broken hearts. But not only that, God lost a son. He knows what it's like. So He's with you in your grief but He also provides the answer because in losing His Son, He brought life to everyone who would believe. And so the Bible can actually state that when a Christian dies, let's just call it what it is, they're they're falling asleep. So Stephen in Acts chapter 7 gets stoned to death. And he cries out really the same prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross. He says, do not hold this sin against them as they're stoning him to death. And you know what how it describes his death, though, of being stoned? He said, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. Like, I, I'm not going to characterize a stoning to death as falling asleep, but the Bible does. Picks it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, Christians who have died. We don't want you to be uninformed about what they actually are. They've fallen asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Jesus says, if you keep my words... You will never see death. And the New Testament continues to use as the metaphor for that. It's as if at night, your eyes close and you fall asleep. And you wake up in the morning and you're awakening to new eternal life in God's new creation for all eternity. The Christian falls asleep and raises to new life, awakens in the morning. Do not be a people who fear death. If you do, cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus because he says, if you keep my words, you will not see death. So stick with Jesus. Keep his word, his sure and better word, and you'll never see death, ever. Secondly, that leads them to ask this question. Are you greater than Abraham and the prophets? Are you more prominent? Do you have greater status than them? Because look, Abraham died. He was great and he died. The prophets were great and mightily used by God and they died. Are you greater than them? No one will see death if they keep your words. Are you that great? And Jesus responds, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day and he saw it and was glad. This is like the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 where Jesus is talking about water with her, and he asks if, if, he, if she wants his living water, and she's like, really? Like, you think you're, are you, she asked the question, are you better than Jacob? 
Jacob gave us this well, and it's still here today, and we still draw water from it, and we drink. And Jesus essentially says, yes, I'm greater than Jacob, because you can drink from his well, but you will thirst again. But if you drink the water that I offer to you, you will never thirst ever again. You won't. So in that context, it's about water and well-giving. In this context, they're asking, are you greater than Abraham? And it's about life and escaping from death supplying, right? Like, so it, it's kind of up the ante here. And Jesus responds to this question that they have. His response is that Abraham acknowledged the priority and the superiority of Jesus, and it's not the other way around. Abraham doesn't have the superiority here. Jesus does, and he says Abraham understood that. So the Pharisees are asking, you think you're greater than Abraham? And Jesus answers, Abraham acknowledges that I'm greater. Most days when I get home from work, I open the front door, and then I hear some wrestling up the stairs. And it's my four-year-old, Walker. And he hears me come home, and he starts to play a game of hide-and-seek. But it's four-year-old hide-and-seek. It's not like 10 or 12-year-old hide-and-seek. This is four-year-old hide-and-seek, meaning he's really loud. So I just follow the noise, and I find him. And, so he, he, and he also hides in the exact same spot every time, kind of in the, in, in the lower part of the end table. And so he hides there, and I go, and I just hear him giggling. Like, he's just excited about this game. He's heard that dad is home. He's heard the door, races to his spot. He's giggling, he's giggling. I walk closer and closer. He's getting louder and louder. He thinks he's hidden. I look around in other places, pretending I'm confused, and then, oh, there you are, right? And he just bursts into laughter and joy and loves it, and it's the greatest thing, and I hope I, he just stays like that, four years old and adorable. But he's going to turn into a teen, and it's going to be, he's going to stink, and I don't know. <laughs> and he's going to be complex, you know? There's just, he's a simple four-year-old. It's just so simple. Pray for me in the coming years. I just love it right now. But in a weird, kind of poor illustrative way, <laughs> this is Abraham. Abraham knows that Jesus is coming through the door. And he's just, what does it say? He's rejoicing. He's glad. Abraham doesn't think that like the promise to him ends in him. The pinnacle of the promise to Abraham is Jesus, and Abraham knows it. So he looks to Jesus' day, and he sees it, and he's filled with laughter and rejoicing and praise and gladness. He looks to this day and sees that Jesus is what God had ultimately planned and promised all those years ago. So Abraham rejoiced. So the really, really, really simple answer to their question, are you greater than Abraham and the prophets? My par paraphrase is Jesus is like, yeah, I am. Yeah, greater. I'm the pinnacle. I'm the promise. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the hope. I'm greater. Can you see it? Will you believe it? See, Abraham not only looked forward to Jesus' life, Abraham was looking forward to what Jesus would accomplish in his perfectly lived life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the ministry and the equipping of the church that he would use, saying that it's better that I go and give you my spirit than that I stick around. And so this is the continuation of what, what made Abraham rejoice. We're living in these times where the, the church is flourishing in the world and reaching the nations and reaching tribes and tongues. We're still living in this time. This is a day of great grace. This is a day that made Abraham rejoice. Abraham looked forward to a day where something would happen. We look back at a day and rejoice that it did. We're living in this time that is incredible. We are living in a day of grace, but my friends, central, it will not always be so. 
Until Jesus comes again from his ascension to when he returns, we are living in a time of grace where Jesus has come simply to rescue and to save. He's come to bring hope to the hopeless. He's come to restore and redeem. We are living in that time. But it will not always be so, for he will come again. And so, if you would believe this, if you would truly know this in your hearts, these days are so important. We don't know how long they will last, but what we know is that Jesus is the great hope, and we have to declare it to a dying world. We are living in a day full of grace. May we proclaim it everywhere we go. May we live unto it. May our purpose be, if you're looking for purpose in your life, be to proclaim Jesus, the Son of God, that those who would believe would have eternal life. For God, through his son Jesus, has sent us on to be a part of the great rescue mission that he ordained and that Abraham looked to and rejoiced and was glad about. Which leads to the third question. Abraham saw your day, you, you've interacted with Abraham. How could you possibly have seen Abraham? They're like, just like, how does the timing work? You're not yet 50. Some of the roles in the temple of some of the priests would kind of end at 50 years old. They wouldn't continue to do some of those roles. And so they're looking at this kind of retirement for ministry folks. Uh, I, I just think that I should stick to that. It's biblical. I'm just like 50 years old. No, not at all. It just keeps going and going, and yet some of the roles they had is you're not anywhere close to 50. You're in, you're in years of, of doing these services, and, and you're not anywhere close, and yet you've seen Abraham. Explain that to us. Because, look, Abraham lived roughly as long before Jesus as Jesus has lived before us, right? So if someone were to say, I saw Jesus. We hung out. We were walking around. I heard him preach. He's a great preacher, right? If we were to talk that way, you're like, how, how did you see Jesus, Right? Well, that's what they're asking because Abraham lived about as long before Jesus as he, Jesus did before us. And Jesus responds to them this, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, existed in the past at a particular time, I am. I exist. What? Now, this is our last week in the Gospel of John for a season. Next week, we're going to crack open the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is going to be more exciting, I think, than you ever thought. We're going to look at the first 15 chapters, really from um, um, God's people being freed out of captivity in Egypt across the Red Sea into celebration, the first 15 chapters of Exodus. That's our summer sermon series. So we'll get into some of this more then, but I have to give you a quick explanation of what this amazing statement that Jesus says where he says, I am, and what that means. It originally happened in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Moses was a refugee on the run from Egypt, tending sheep in a place called Midian, when the voice of God appeared to him in a burning bush. Burning bush. Crazy, right? So this is going on, and God, seeing the affliction of his people, calls Moses to go back to a place that he's run from in order to be used by God so that these people who are afflicted can be freed. And it's in this context that Moses is like, okay, so what do I say when I go to the people and say, you're God? has said that, uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, God's going to use me to set you free. And what if they ask what, what your name is? What should I say? <laughs> He's like, help me out. He's, I think, stalling, to be honest. But we'll get into that next, in the next few weeks. But God said to Moses this, I am who I am. And he said, say, that, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. 
God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This name is I am that he is to be remembered by and that he has come to his people to proclaim. Let me give you, because this is so rich and so full, just two succinct responses, kind of definitions of what this statement means. The first is that there's a link in I am, um, in, the, in the verb to be. It conveys his self-sufficiency and active self-existence, and Jesus is proclaiming this about himself. He doesn't owe, in other words, his existence to anyone other than himself. He had no beginning and has no end. I am is another way of saying he is the God who is. He just is. He was never created. He never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He is. And the second part of this statement is that he expands it beyond self-existence to self-revelation, revealing the intimacy and relational aspects of God's character. So he is the God who is and the God who is with his people. And so Jesus, God who took on flesh, stands before people and says, I am I am the God who is. I don't have a beginning. I don't have an end. I've always been, so I was certainly around when Moses was there, right? And I'm the God who reveals himself to his people, and here I stand more brilliantly, more clearly than ever before. And Jesus steps up and says, before Abraham was, I am. That's me. And what's so fascinating about this is that he's not only saying that he's seen Abraham, He's not only saying that he was there when the burning bush happened. He's saying, I was the one who said it. Before Abraham was, I am. He means it that way, and the people hear it that way. They think he's a blasphemer. They don't think he is God, but he's saying he's God. So what do they do? Verse 59, they pick up stones. They want to kill him. They understand what he's saying. They just don't believe it. So I don't have very many, to close, I don't have very many really practical kind of go with this kinds of things this morning. I'm just so stunned by the statement of I am what it means, the depth of it all. I just want to get us to get our number two pencils out right now and just get into Doctrine 101 class for a little bit and just kind of view what this means that Jesus is saying. So I'm going to tell you some of the attributes of God that Jesus in the gospel makes clear about himself. He says, I have those attributes, which means he cannot simply be a good man. And it means that he isn't simply even just a good prophet or a great prophet. He's God himself. And it starts with his eternity. We see it here. He said, before Abraham was, I am. I've always existed. He says this in the very last book of the Bible, in the very last chapter of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. I am everything. I've always been. The beginning and the end. So he is eternal. Now, just a little caveat here. Um, Not everyone believes this. Even some who claim to be Christians don't actually believe this. Arius was, a, was really a plague to the church in the third century. Maybe you've heard of Arianism. It's the heretical belief that denies the divinity of Jesus while maintaining that Jesus was created by God the Father. So God the Father created Jesus. That's the Arian view. But this means that Jesus neither, is neither co-eternal with the Father or of the same substance or of the same essence of the Father. 
But Jesus here, more clearly than anywhere else in the gospel, states something entirely different about himself. He declares that I am. He is God. He's not created by God or even just the the best and greatest and first creation of God. He is God, and the implications are nothing short of the gospel itself. So Athanasius, who was opposed to Arius and the Nicene Creed came out of this Arian controversy, Uh, Athanasius was opposed to Arius and said that Arius and his followers committed blasphemy in two ways. Here's what they were. They worshipped a creature as God and caught, right? They they, they believed that Jesus was a creation and yet they worshipped him and at the same time called God incarnate merely a creature. And you can't have it both ways. So one of these things, if not both, are going on. They worshipped a creature as God because they thought he was created, and they called God God incarnate, Jesus the Son, who is not created. They called him created. They called him merely a creature. So to worship God rightly, Athanasius insisted, is to worship him as the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, and member of the one Godhead. There are those who still believe in the Arian view. Jehovah's Witnesses would be one of those groups. So let me just help you out really practically. The next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to the door, A, open it. (laughs) I don't know. It's it's worth a shot. Like, open the door and say, let's talk about who God is. And open up John chapter 8, verse 58. You know what it says in, in their translation? Before Abraham came into existence, I have been. You hear the difference? Their translation says, before Abraham came into existence, I have been. I was created, and I was created before Abraham, so I was around. But I'm not I am. I'm not the name of God, for I am not God. I've just been. And just engage John 8, 58. It's a horrific translation of the text. And it's also a way to really talk about the divinity of Jesus, which is that dividing line for Jesus saves. Not because He's created, but because He's God. Not because a created being died, but because God died. Not because a created being saves, but because God saves. So he is eternal. If you want to use your number two pencil in Doctrine 101, and for another word, write down omnipotence. For Jesus reveals in the Gospels that he is omnipotent, meaning he has power over everything. He's the God when there was a storm at sea with one word calmed it. Just a good guy can't do that. Merely a prophet cannot do that. Only God can do that. With a word, the storm stopped and the seas settled. In John's gospel, we see Jesus turn water into wine. We see him multiply loaves and fishes from a boy's lunch to feeding 5,000 men and their families. And John 6 also declares that Jesus walked on water. Maybe David Blaine has done that. I'm not sure, but I think it's just trickery. Jesus did it on a lake. He's done it. Everybody, anybody remember? Any, all right. He is God because he's eternal and because he's omnipotent. Thirdly, he's omniscient. Omniscient, meaning he has knowledge of everything. In John 2.25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, it says, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus didn't need any help figuring out what any person or all humanity thought, or where they were at, for he knew everyone's soul. 
The disciples figure this out in John chapter 16, where the disciples said, now we know that you know all things. Or after Peter has denied Jesus, and Jesus three times says, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. When he's saying this, Peter at one point, heartbroken, says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. It's because Peter knows that he's omniscient. He knows the heart. He knows everything. And because he has knowledge of everything, Peter, Peter argues, you know my heart because you know all. And in knowing my heart, you know that I love you. That's his argument. Only God can do that. He's omniscient. Fourthly, God is omnipresent. It means he sees all things everywhere. Now, if you want your mind to start to hurt a little bit, you have to ask the question, okay, but when Jesus, God eternal, took on flesh, Jesus, God the Son, took on human form, fully God and fully man, what are the incommunicable attributes of God that maybe he pressed pause on for a little bit? Meaning there are attributes of God that we don't share. We share some communicable attributes of God, like love, in a lesser way, but we can love. God loves. We can love. That's a communicable attribute. But an incommunicable attribute is eternity or omnipotence or omniscience, omnipresence, right? And so at some point, Jesus doesn't talk like he knows all things, sees all things everywhere. There's some sort of pause in what makes him both God and human in that season. And yet he refers to that looking forward to the time when the church would be established and says things like in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I'm there. We have churches all over the world meeting at the same time where we gather. They're there. We're right, this is actually a church discipline text, but where that is, where there's faithfulness and authority in a local church, I'm in that. And in Matthew 28, he says, go and make it disciples. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Who's he with? He's with disciples, every disciple, everywhere. If you are a disciple making disciples who goes and makes disciples, Jesus says, I'm with you in that. I'm present in it. He sees all things everywhere because he's omnipresent. Only God can do that. He is also sovereign. He's sovereign, meaning he has authority over all things. Mark chapter 2, when Jesus saw the faith of these awesome guys who are like the best friends ever, where there's a crowded house and um, they want their paralyzed friend to be healed, they cut a hole in the roof and they like lower him down so Jesus is teaching and then this man just like... And he sees the faith of them, and he sees the faith of this man, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And then the guy walks out with his mat as well. But he says, his sins are forgiven. And then it says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that's the point. Jesus is not the greatest creation ever, He's the co-creator. He is the creating one. He's always been, always will be, and has sovereign authority over all things. Your number two pencils are starting to wear down because now we're talking about immortality. He has an inability to die. And you say, wait a minute, he did die. But he has this inability to die in this, that in John chapter 2, he says to the crowd, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. He was speaking about the temple of his body when therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus could not be held by death for when he was crucified only for the purpose of our salvation, he could take up his own life for he is immortal God. So, 
Jesus is really saying all of this. Everything you could think about the attributes of God, as I state before you that I am God, I mean all of those things. And in fact, he displayed those things throughout the gospel. That is, um, we have to address Jesus in our lives for that very reason. And I really believe that we will only do that one of two ways. We'll either worship him or we'll want to kill him. We'll want to worship him or we will want to kill him. For Jesus stands in front of us all and says, I'm God and I save. Now, we might be a little bit indifferent, but even in that, we're, we're neglecting Jesus. We don't want anything to do with him. He's removed from our lives. He's as good as dead. So we either want to worship him or we want to kill him. And as Jesus states that he is God and we have to wrestle with who he is in our lives, the people pick up stones and want to kill him. We have to address this. And what we see in this text is that his competence is addressed, his prominence is addressed, and his divinity is addressed. And that should cause us to respond in worship. It should cause us to respond in humble obedience to his instruction, right? Keep my words. And have the assurance that Jesus provides. For Jesus has said here something only God should say, and that's the point. So as far as Orthodox Christians go, if we're talking about who Jesus is and how the Trinity works, here's our belief. This is the long-held, always-believed Orthodox Christian view. There are three persons in the one true and living God. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and they are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So this works itself out in a couple of beautiful ways. It's only the triune God that can be love above all things. What do we want more than anything? If there is a God, what do we want more than anything from that God? You know what we want? We want His love. We want to be loved by this God if He exists. And it's only the triune God can, that can do that. You know why? Because before anything existed, the triune God existed and experienced and was perfect love perfect communion. So this monotheistic one God, one person, like the God of Islam, for example, is a God that is not love of all things. It's power above all things. For before anything existed, He alone was, nothing to love. And out of His power, He created beings that could love Him and that He could love, and that's where it would be found. So above all things, He's power, but we know that power corrupts ultimately, but not love. Love ultimately is what we long for from God and to know from God, and it's only the triune God that can answer that. Here's another example of triune, the triune God. It's only the triune God that can both rule and reign and sacrificially die. This monotheistic one God in one expression, one person cannot die. The whole earth crumbles and implodes right, on itself, but it's only the triune God that can both hold up rule and reign and sacrificially die at the same time. But you know what the implications of that are? It means that we have the kind of God that doesn't just have mercy in some sort of way that says, you know what, I'll forgive that, and I'll forgive that blindly, just sort of being a God of much mercy. That's what, it can, unless you're the triune God, though, you can actually be perfectly just and perfectly loving, right? You can have both the wrath of God that is due can also be enveloped in grace. 
For, G- for God to be truly just, He cannot bypass our wrongdoing. And it's only the triune God that can send Jesus to bear the wrath of God for us. And as He does, wrath gets dealt with, meaning every wrong on the planet that has ever happened, that ever will happen, will be made right. Only the triune God can answer that. And the reason is, is because either Jesus paid for it or the people who deny Jesus will. But every wrong gets paid for and every wrong is made right. And so our hope is either in Jesus or in self. And one day when we stand before God, when the season of grace has ended, all will be made right. It's only the triune God that can make a way for justice and wrath to commingle with love and grace. He is the answer. He is the hope. He is God Himself. So, my friends, central, cling to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Rely on Jesus this morning. For you will be sustained. You will be able to do away with the enslaving power of sin in your life. You will be useful for the work of ministry and you'll never taste death. You'll never see death. You will merely sleep and awaken to new heavens and new earth for all eternity. I think that's worthy of our worship in response. So why don't we have the band come on up? I also want to invite up our communion servers as well. They're going to kind of be in different stations in the room, um, front of these aisles down below and top corners up on the balcony. I want to invite our prayer team as well to kind of get into different places in the room. We want to respond in a number of ways to the greatness and glory of Jesus, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, Jesus our Savior, the great I Am. And so we want to invite you to come on forward and receive communion over the course of a couple of songs. We invite you to do that. And and it's for anyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. If that's not you, if you're sort of just exploring faith, if you're not sure about Christianity yet, bless you. Hang out. We're so glad you're here. Learn the songs. Sing the songs. Sit and pray. Be prayed for. All of it. Uh, But this is for people who say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. I rely on what Jesus did and what this symbolizes. He tells Christians everywhere, continue to gather and remember me by remembering my body broken for you on the cross, my blood shed for you on the cross so that in my death you can have life and have it eternal. So really, um, just for you to know, this is gluten-free, celiacs, I wonder what Jesus thinks when I state things like that. His body is celiac approved. So, yes. But we, we want nothing to hinder you. We have uh, a, a couple of ushers that would love to, to help those that are not mobile. And we're just going to, if you want to take the body and blood of Christ this morning, not, let nothing hold that back. Sing and worship to Jesus. Be prayed for. We believe in the power of prayer. You're going to be up anyways. Just slip to one of the places in the room where you can receive prayer. We'd love to pray with you this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for who you are. Lord, as I I just try to proclaim what, what you proclaim so boldly, so richly, and so beautifully in the text we're looking at this morning, you are the great I am. You are God who lay down his life for his friends. We praise you. Our lives are yours. Use us, I pray. Minister to us as we minister to one another in this time. In Jesus' precious name, amen.